you're tuning into Work That Matters, the official Shaleda podcast. To learn more about us, visit shaleda.com, C-H-L-O-E-T-A.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Work That Matters podcast. This is Mark Masters at Shaleda, and I'm here with my good friend, David Cummingdeer, who made uh, the trek down from Spade Mountain to the big city of OKC to join us today. So thanks for coming, David. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for inviting me. So I appreciate man. David and I go a long way back, and, and kind of the first thing I wanted to ask you about was um, I know you were involved in the original creation of the Historical Preservation Office for our tribe. We're both uh, Cherokee tribal citizens. Uh the Cherokee Nation, I wanted you to maybe just tell us what that process was like when when you were involved in that. Well, when the, uh, I don't remember the year, it was, it was the late 90s, and Chad Smith was uh, first elected as our chief, there became a need within our tribe to develop a historic preservation office. And since I was involved in housing and firefighting and land management and environmental uh, quality control within our departments there, uh, and I'd already been doing some archaeological work with the local BIA archaeologist on tribal land with Cherokee projects. I was asked if I would help build the very first tribal historic preservation office for our tribe. And, of course, I, uh, I did. I accepted the position. It had never existed before. And so we started moving into uh, not only consulting with uh other tribes that historically lived in our area before we did, the Caddo, the Wichita, whatnot. So uh, we had responsibility to consult with tribes that predated our uh, being in Oklahoma and also to consult with agencies that were working on lands that belonged to us or that used to belong to us back east of the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. So uh, we had a whole bunch of historical sites within our boundary that were, I wouldn't say unidentified, but not exactly taken care of. They were some historical buildings. Uh, some of them were already on the state register of historic places. One, the Cherokee Capitol building was not only a, a state historical site, but a national monument. Only one of 18 in the entire state of Oklahoma is right downtown Tahlequah, Oklahoma, and all of our buildings were in shambles. Mm -hmm. So we had no assessments done. We had no uh, grant money to do any restoration on them. We had the Supreme Court building on uh, Katua Street, Katua and Water Street in Tahlequah. The oldest public building in the state of Oklahoma is the Cherokee Nation Supreme Court building, and the only building we had that survived the Civil War. It was built in 1844, five years after relocation here from the government removal of our people. So we had some fantastic places that potentially could bring in, uh, you know, some opportunities for restoration and and, 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 and tourism to our tribe to visit. So uh, I went to work. I met with uh, people from the National Park Service. Um, My good friend, the president of the National Trail of Tears Association, Jack Baker, former councilman Jack Baker. Here in Oklahoma City. City. Um, You know, and a cousin of mine. I didn't know that. Great guy and a a beloved relative of my family. And so between the Park Service and uh, the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians and Jack Baker, we started working together to build the very first plan, a historic preservation plan for the Cherokee Nation. 
and uh, also identify what needed to be done to restore and revitalize our historical buildings and protect some sites where buildings used to be or you know ceremonial sites uh, forgotten cemeteries of our people um, because we have been here since the 1830s so even though this isn't our ancient homeland we've been here a long time and we've left a lot of uh, cultural resources in the earth around where we live and of course the tribes that were here before us all the archaeological sites and uh, prehistoric sites mound sites that are now within the boundary of the Cherokee Nation we had to develop a plan to protect all this so let me ask you about that. So when you said you like went out with the archaeologists for the BIA, that was those were looking at sites um, that had happened obviously after 1839, where there was some kind of artifact right at a site within the current Cherokee Nation, and you guys would go out and identify those. I mean, the archaeologists would do what they do and and find those artifacts and and mark that as a cultural site and go through. That whole process, I, I know surprisingly little about this. I mean, we're we're doing culture, a lot of tribal consultation work, right, in our environmental consulting um, vertical here at Shalea, but I don't know a ton about this kind of work, to be honest with you. So I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. But is that kind of what it was like when you were going out with the BIA archaeologist? It was to identify or um, analyze these sites where there was some kind of some kind of artifact in the earth that was put there post 1839 by one of our people. Is that yes, right? it, there was it, it encompassed all historical or prehistorical uh, sites that could be impacted by a federally funded tribal project within our boundary. And so, the BIA archaeologist—he was the area archaeologist for the Eastern Oklahoma region BIA out of Muskogee. His name was Benjamin, Benjamin Barnett. Ended up being a real good friend of mine after we worked together so long. Uh, he has since retired, but. When we had a tribal project that utilized federal funds or was on tribal trust land, it required certain things to be done, like uh, compliance and, sure. and assessment and whatnot. Just like the bio- biological stuff we do on the NEPA exactly. site. Exactly. All the NEPA documents all had to be done then. And so before project began... I would go out. I was a, what they call a heritage resource technician. Mm-hmm. I was there on behalf of the tribe, sort of as a trust officer at that time, but also to assist the older archaeologist from the BIA because he was just one guy. He didn't have a staff. Yeah. So it really helped him to have some local knowledge of a local Cherokee young man like myself to be able to help him navigate through our communities because it's uh, we don't have street names in our right. area. Well, you have to know where you're going which hollers and, and which mountains are there. So when we would go into a property where a project was proposed to be done, first and foremost, Ben would bring uh, any state records of prehistoric sites that by uh, archaeologists from in the 1930s, 1940s possibly, who uh, stumbled on or uh, turned in some sort of record that there was an archaeological site along some waterway or something. And so we would review any existing records that were held with the state on the area. And then we would go, say there was a site, a prehistoric site on the property Uh that may be impacted by our federal project. We would go and 
we would do shovel testing, very, very methodical, very organized gridding of, of the site and some shovel testing to see if the site was still there. Was it accurately recorded in that specific location? Mm-hmm. And does it have boundaries to it? Mm-hmm. And do we need to create an avoidance area around the site? It wasn't meant to stop a project from happening. Sure. It was just to, to mitigate so it didn't get disturbed. Just right? in case. Because a lot of the prehistoric sites, you know, they said, well, it's just a bunch of artifacts. It's just a bunch of lithic scatter. It's mm-hmm. just a bunch of, of grinding bowls from a village. Well, you know, people are buried there, too. They right. lived there. So we had to be very careful wow. about how we proceeded on. Was it a significant site? Was it a, a few flakes of, of flint and a, maybe a, a dark point? Was it something that maybe a, a random hunter dropped an arrowhead that, that may not constitute a village site or, or anything with any kind of burials? Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly if there was mound features on the property, it would constitute a, a permanent village setting. And, and those had to seriously be looked at, not only to avoid destruction of the earthen uh, earthworks of the ancient people, but also try to establish a boundary so that the project could avoid, wow. you know, uh, doing some damage to the to the site, and those you know, obviously, we're talking thousands of years before the removal, before we got here in 1839 or through the 1840s, early 40s. Um, so I know you mentioned some of those other tribes that used to inhabit the area, but can you kind of go over those again? What those are, and um, the kind of you know, I, I know a little bit about the culture of our tribe and the five civilized tribes because there's a lot of similarity there, right? But I don't know much about the cultures and history of those tribes that were in what is now the Cherokee Nation Reservation before we got here in the 1830s. Yeah, they're, they're you know, the, the range is impressive how long uh, some of these sites have been occupied. So you'll have multi- multiple occupation on one very uh, strategic piece of real estate. Like something near where two waterways come together exactly. or something? The confluence of two rivers with a piece of high ground that won't flood. Man has lived on places like that since man Eons. rose from the earth. I mean, and so you would just find maybe different tribes or maybe even different civilizations over thousands of years. Correct. Layered on top of each other in the soil. Correct. Wow. And so you'd have layers of occupation on some really... Uh, strategic sites that have always been prime real estate, uh-huh. and so you would you would go back into paleo era of Indian before tribal names were known or whatever. But up into the more recent prehistory, mm-hmm. you're looking at Caddo. The Caddo Indian people were native to our our area and mound builders, part of the, the very westernmost Mississippian mound. Part of the mound complex of yep. the southeast. Like the was, westernmost southeastern mound builders. Yes, sir. Basically. was right where we live. The wow. Elmar River, the Barren Fork, wow. uh, Clouds Creek, Spavanaugh Creek, all the places we grew up. That's where I grew I mean, Clouds Creek's a few miles, 10 miles from where that's I grew up. That's so. where these people wow. were spread out. And, of course, you know, they had large civic centers like at Spiro, Oklahoma, Spiro Mounds on the Arkansas River. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, all the waterways... Those were the highways of the past, the byways, so to speak. You know, all the water would flow 
and then go into a bigger river, and then go into a bigger river, and end up in the Arkansas, then end up in the White River, then the Mississippi, down in the Gulf of Mexico. And from there, you can uh, navigate by boat and trade all the way around, you know, the, the Horn, the Yucatan, and then yeah, up to the East Coast, anywhere. Yeah. And so even though we have little these little backwoods sites, they are tied to a very highly organized system wow. of other recorded sites. Some are like world monument sites like spiral mounds and other mound uh, sites in our in our region so to accurately uh, recognize those if they've been recorded go back in establish the site is still intact and it has a boundary and we can avoid doing any damage to it and all it does is leave the site intact for maybe future interpretation because interpreting an archaeological site is very expensive mm-hmm. very time consuming it takes a lot of professional people to do it. Would that be like, um, I mean, that was where they would come in and do a formal archaeological dig with the whole team and do it real, you know, methodically and in a scientific way. That's right. Wow. So what we did was our job was not to interpret the site. Our job was to establish that if there was a recorded state site on our property, mm-hmm. we would check to make sure, yes, the site is accurately reported. It is here. And we can safely say there are there's a boundary to it, and uh, we just need to avoid this area. Were, were those records pretty good from the state in the 90s? Or They wow. were. Wow. You'd be That's very surprising. surprised, very surprised um, what lies beneath our feet mm-hmm. everywhere and is recorded by somebody back in early years of Oklahoma. Uh, you can even go back before. Uh, the interviews that were done in the 19th, late 1930s, what they call the WPA interviews, mm-hmm. or the Indian Pioneer Papers, uh, specifically the Cherokee interviews. Now, they were interviewing people in the 1930s who were alive in the during the Civil War and uh, post-Civil War era, pre-statehood. So they're interviewing all these old people that were born back in 1850, 1860. Mm-hmm. And they said, when our people came, the Cherokees, when we arrived here in eastern Oklahoma, there were Indians here. And they would say where Peavine Creek hits Barron Fork Creek, there were Indian mounds and still fire pits. Like they were had just left and were gonna come back. And, oh you know, right where we live. So all those though although those aren't archaeological reports, mm-hmm. They are eyewitness testimonies from people who remember their daddy or their granddaddy telling them, when we came in here, there were Indians here. There were already Indians here. And they would say in the interviews where those sites were, the mounds and the, the, you know, some wooden structures, you know, of of where people live in the village. You know, when everyone thinks about the removal and, and the displacement of all those tribes from all over the U.S. smushed here together, right, in Oklahoma, a lot of times you don't think about the tribes that were already here, right? And then, so what were some other ones that you mentioned? And uh, besides Caddo, was it Wichita? There was uh, there was some Wichita and Quapaw, um, uh, Osage, Osage. The Osage uh, seemed like I remember were uh, primarily uh, of interest in the later prehistory of mm-hmm. you know they lived in our area as well. Like, Culturally, I'm more familiar with Osage. I don't know anything about Wichita, but culturally, 
they're they were way different than the Caddo tribe, right? Those were more plains oriented, I'm guessing. More yeah. nomad I mean, not southeastern mound people, right? They were not mound people. They were they were more of a plains traditional uh, hunter mm-hmm. uh, type people. When we talk about the Caddo, mm-hmm. you're talking about very similar to the Cherokee mm-hmm. and the Muscogee Creek, and the Choctaw, and the Chickasaw. Mm-hmm. All of the great mound building tribes of the southeast, the Caddo were the westernmost edge of that uh, massive mm-hmm. uh, society. And so I can't say it comes much further west than maybe Muscogee area or, you know, the mound building. It was mostly east of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, think of a highway. I can't think of a highway where it would say, well, east of that highway, mm-hmm. but that eastern edge of Oklahoma, it was part of the Caddo domain. And, of course, the Osage overlapped in there, too. Mm-hmm. And then you go back into very ancient, you know, artifacts that were 5,000, 8,000, 10,000, 12,000 years old right in our area. They were probably not just the predecessors of the Caddo tribe, probably predecessors of all the southeastern tribes, right? Very well could have been. Uh, and so all of our ancestors, mm-hmm. you know, wow, it's hard to say at that point. Let me ask you another random question, not to get off on a whole unrelated tangent, but one thing I've been interested in in the last like couple months researching or learning about is um, the Cherokee Strip, which a lot of Cherokees don't think about or don't even know about. Um, and you know, I, I remember hearing about it when I was a kid in, in school or history or whatever. But um, you know, I was reading something a couple months ago, and it, it just struck me that. You know that that was ours at one point, and and there was a purpose by, behind why it was given to us. Besides what we have now for the current reservation boundaries, and and I don't really know the process of like how that went back into you know land run uh, from you know being allied to the tribe. But um, the part that I read that was fascinating just a few months ago, which you probably know this, was that you know the government uh, said, well, they're going to have to have somewhere to hunt. And so we'll give them this strip um, so they can go hunt buffalo, which, you know, I, I know that our people did hunt some eastern buffalo, but it just made me wonder if it wasn't just another symptom of bad tribal consultation by the U.S. government thinking that, you know, hey, these turkeys can load up and they're going to go out on the plains and be nomadic for the summer and, and chase these buffalo, you know, it's like, well, that's. Not, not that we didn't use buffalo, but that is not the culture or history of our tribe whatsoever, you know. So, The uh, the strip you're talking about is the panhandle of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And the whole northern the tier, whole really. Northern it was all tier. of it. And what's funny, too, is I read, like, some um, Cherokee accounts that when, when they got here, they all were, you know, not they all. A lot of people said, well, that land's useless. We're going to stay over here, which is more bountiful, right? Green and less arid and look more like home to a degree, right? The homelands. And what's funny is, uh, had we known what laid under the earth in terms of oil and gas, we probably would have never gave up that land of the Osage or let it go into allotment. But, you know, we just, we didn't know back then. We had no idea what was laying under the surface of the earth. It wasn't even a concept at that time. The, the panhandle of Oklahoma, uh, or the Cherokee Strip, Mm-hmm. It was also called the Cherokee Outlet. Mm-hmm. If if you left the the main body of the Cherokee land, which where we where we live, and you went to the northern edge along the Kansas line, 
and you went straight west, you could get to New Mexico, Texas, Colorado, or of course, Kansas. Mm-hmm. It was an outlet yeah. to get to those areas. Without ever leaving the Cherokee Nation. And you did not leave your tribal boundary. It was almost like a, a pathway or a sidewalk, so to speak, a thoroughfare to get from the east side of the state to that very tip of the panhandle of Oklahoma and then access other lands from there. Now, I don't know if that was done as a favor for, for our people or if if we had an agreement to allow other tribes to use that, that pathway or if we even cared. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I do know that from what I can remember being told that there was a decision made at one point that we will sell that, we will sell that outlet, we'll sell that strip. And that was pre-statehood. And I read, I read, think I write, I think I read the amount and it was something insane. You know, we sold, I don't know, 20 million acres for like a hundred thousand bucks or something. Well, I, I don't know the amount, but yeah, it probably it was wasn't, it didn't, it did, probably maybe in those times, but today's yeah, but even, even then I'd think it probably didn't. Surprisingly, you're yeah. gonna, it's going to be hard to believe, but it sounds like it didn't work out in our favor. <laughs> well, I, I don't know the amount of money that we sold it for. I don't know what they decided to do, but they, what they did with the money is the important part. Okay. The, the Cherokee Nation, the leadership of our tribe, took the revenue from that land sale, and they put 50% of it into education of our children. Talk about forward thinking for pre-Civil War. We had the best schools west of the Mississippi. You've told me this before. Tell us more about that. Well, the you know, education is the is the closest thing to magic that you can give a, a, another person, a child especially. And so, the Cherokees and the other tribes that that came here, you know, we had really been through horrible uh, events the removal processes i mean we lost uh, thousands of our people perished along the way and so instead of you know just giving up and rolling over because the american government had had closed the curtain on the cherokee people on and the tribes here we were put on the largest pow camp in the world what they called oklahoma that's what it was the prisoner of war camp, right in the middle of the country. If there was never an uprising, they could come at us from all sides. So instead of being bitter, we decided to do better. And we uh, rebuilt our government, reestablished a constitution in 18, September 6, 1839, just weeks, months after yeah. the removal. I mean, these people had lost half their families. And they couldn't even give them a proper burial somewhere along that thousand-mile death march. But they didn't give up. They stuck together. They sat down around the oak tree, and they made counsel, and they reestablished ourselves to give, a, to give us a future. Mm-hmm. And they drafted a constitution, and they said, we'll educate our people. We'll build a court system. We'll build a legislative body. We'll build a judicial system, and we'll manage our own. And so by 1845, just a few years, 1844-1845, we had broken our lands up into nine districts, each with its own district courthouse, with the Supreme Court building being in our capital town of Tahlequah. Jeez. This is a 
rapid rebuild after rapid. the trauma of the removal, right? Special people. They had to be some of the toughest minded mentally, people. Yeah, mentally toughest. Emotionally tough to endure what had happened. And then rebuild in such a magnificent way so fast. And then by 1850 had started building what we call the seminary schools, the male seminary, female seminary, where all the Turkey kids could come and get an education on the practical things. Including female, which was not common outside That's right. of the tribes at that time. I mean, you've, you and I have talked about this before, but you know, the Cherokees were among the first to, uh, relative to the non-native settlers, even back east, right, to educate both sexes of their children That's equally. Right. That's right. Long before the removal, right? We we were it was post removal. Okay. That type of education okay. was post removal. Um but the sale of the of some of our lands that were they said, Well, we don't really need that outlet. We don't need that panhandle. Uh, we can we need to educate our kids. What what they use the other half for, do you know, of the money? You know, I'm sure it went to building uh better courthouses and and because the courthouses started up being log buildings Mm -hmm. and later became you know more improved buildings more framed and brick buildings and things so i'm sure that some of that money was used to uh build infrastructure i mean they didn't have any roads yeah they had nothing Hmm. it was wilderness there was Mm -hmm. no roads there was no uh maps of the land they had to scout out and figure all of this out and the government issued each man each one of our grandfathers mm-hmm. the head of a family they issued each one one hoe and one axe wow i didn't know that and so that's what they rebuilt with hmm. wow yeah one hoe and one axe is what we rebuilt our new life. Wow. And after, you know, losing that many people, and we fast forward to now, mm-hmm. you know, third largest employer in the state. Right. I mean, prosperity. Beyond economically viable. Yeah. yeah. Prosperity like we've never seen before within our tribe. I, I just hope that we don't forget how we got here. Yep. And, and why, yep. and the sacrifices that were made so that we could have this opportunity to right. experience and enjoy prosperity. I just had the exact conversation with a friend yesterday. You know, it's like we're, we're like we're in the, the most viable spot we've ever been in the history of the tribe. So, like, what are, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to continue to improve or are we going to, you know, use those gains for something other than what we should, you know? We need to be very careful. We need to be very respectful of our forefathers and what they gave us and the lessons that they gave us so that we can move forward effectively with uh, love and respect for our older people and and the ones that haven't been born yet. And a lot of people maybe that aren't around Indian country or aren't, um, you know, do business with tribes or around tribes, maybe don't understand what that economic viability looks like, but you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's not just us. There are other tribes that are doing really, really well. 
And ironically, our last guest, one of the things that we were just talking about was the 8A program. And that's allowed uh, some tribes, including our tribe, to not only uh, rival but even potentially exceed their gaming revenue across the entire tribe with government – not only supplement it but exceed it in, all, in a lot of cases – uh, government contracting revenue, you know, more so even or as much as the gaming revenue, which is tremendous. So, and, you know, I think a lot of people don't really realize that, like, unfortunately in the world and the society we live, it takes that kind of cash revenue to exercise sovereignty and to be stable and to be respected with our partners. I mean, it's just, unfortunately, the, the, the money is a requirement, right? But, like, you got to be careful what you do with it, too. You know, it's like, it takes it takes financial stability and economic viability to be able to exercise your sovereign rights as a tribe. I think, but um, it's kind of like a double edged sword, I guess. You know what I mean? It takes mature leadership that really looks inward, yeah, towards its people and remembers what our forefathers passed down, yeah, and the the level of sacrifice that the leaders should make mm-hmm. for the good of of their people that's yep. a core value of our tribe you know it's to uh, if we have to sacrifice ourselves we will if it's in the best interest of the children and the children to come that's a basic core value of the Cherokee Indian and I would hope that our leaders would embrace that concept as they move forward with the revenues that, that are coming in today, uh, you know, I don't think we're putting 50% into our education by any means, maybe 1% or a part of a percent, but, uh, you know, the world, well, has, the world has changed a lot. Yeah. We said we weren't going to talk about tribal politics, so I'll move us on because we're getting Good close. Idea. That's where we always end up. Yeah. Uh, but so shifting gears on you, man, um, I know you haven't done a ton of work yet. I know it's a pretty small project, but... From a business standpoint, um, you know, we do quite a bit of environmental consulting, NEPA compliance, stuff like that. And along with that, we're getting pulled into by our clients more um, cultural resources work. Um, a lot of it's being done by subcontractors, uh, archaeology firms, several different ones that work for us. But um, but also the tribal consultation piece of that as well. And so that's an area where um, we've done some work we've subbed out a lot of work but we're currently working on bringing some of that work in-house and so i know you haven't done much yet but i was just wanting to talk about this one project that we do have you working on now that we hope to get continue to get more of these kind of projects and bring them in-house and, and use you and some other folks that we have on those um so that project is for it's grant funded it's for um the national wildlife foundation it's through a large business government contractor teaming partner that we're subcontracted to to help with a small piece of the overall thing which is the tribal consultation piece um and it's called the america the beautiful technical assistance project but um can you tell us a little bit more about that well just like what we talked about with our tribe the the projects that go on on with our land with they use federal money it's a federal undertaking, so you have to follow all of these guidelines. With federal money comes all the rules. Right. right. So to effectively consult with the tribes in a respectful way is very important. Now, in this day and age, most tribes probably have a tribal historic preservation officer. Uh, 25 years ago, no tribes had that. 
they were at the uh, mercy of the whatever state they lived in to house records or maybe they had some oral histories or uh, you know something of their of their sensitive sites within their boundary but today you have I would imagine hundreds of bona fide uh, tribal historic preservation officers with staffed uh, offices within those tribes. I know that uh, most tribes in Oklahoma have have that. And so those are going to be the people you would consult with. And I believe probably every THPO is a member of a citizen of the tribe they work for, which makes sense. They're, you know, they're from that tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, so making contact with those people and building a relationship with them and, and making sure they feel comfortable, they feel confident in what we do and how we present things to them uh, and, and honor their timeline in order to respond. I, it's the best we can do. I mean, right. that, that's, that's a great working relationship. Right. So what is this project um, that National Wildlife Foundation, this um, project that I just mentioned, do you know what that is? You said, I know you said that there were a ton of different tribes involved, like dozens, but do you know what the, like, what's, what's, the, actual, what's the actual work of the project? What's the actual intent of the project? Is to coordinate with all these different tribes on something that the DODs want to do or something like that? Or, or do you know? It seemed like most of it had to do with, uh, with groundbreaking. Okay. So there was either some forestry uh, work, um, maybe road improvement, road widening. Gotcha. You get into breaking ground, and anytime you have a federal project where you're actually breaking ground, it's a federal undertaking, and all of these NEPA requirements fall in. So there was not just one or two different projects per tribe. There were 50 different tribes with tons of different projects each one of them are doing and and they're all going to require some sort of consultation both environmentally and of course uh, culturally with the tribes so each one of them has to be taken individually and and looked at uh, from a professional standpoint how best is it to uh, navigate through all the consultation process and environmental requirements for this project including working with those cultural leaders or THPOs from each individual tribe, if they have them, and I think most of them do now. Makes sense. Makes sense, man. Um, shifting gears, another direction on you. So a lot of people are um, not familiar with what 638 compacting is, and, and I'm not an expert in it by any means, but just have dealt with it in being an, a BIA employee previously, and I know you worked as a tribal employee of a tribe in a 638 compacted program, but um, you know, maybe for our viewers or listeners that aren't familiar with that process, I mean, my understanding of it is um, the way to, the way that I tell people to think about it is um, the government has certain trust responsibilities to tribes, right? And that that's spelled out in law. And it can be healthcare, it can be natural resources, environmental, cultural. It can be a number of different things, right? Um, and if and and on. For the tribes, the the federal government provides that via Indian Health Services, BIE, BIA, right? But under the self-determination and self-governance capabilities that are out there to tribes, uh, if a tribe can demonstrate that they can self-govern, then they can essentially petition the federal government to take that program over 
to manage it in-house, to receive the funds that the government, federal government would have used on it, and then oftentimes they supplement it with their own tribal funds to improve the program, and then they manage that program, whatever it may be. And, and our Cherokee healthcare system and the Chickasaws have really done a good job as well, or a really good example of that. Um, but, you know, maybe if that's not accurate, tell us or tell us, you know, kind of what your experience has been working in 638 compacted programs versus seeing maybe, you know, we deal with a lot of tribes in the Western U.S. Um, for a lot of the work that we do. And um, for a lot of those reservation-based tribes that are still totally reliant upon IHS and BIA, BIA for all their services, you know, the level of service that those tribal citizens are receiving is far different than what a Chickasaw or a Cherokee is receiving potentially when, when they go to request some kind of service from the tribe. That's right. When you, when you compact your responsibilities from the BIA, you are taking on a huge responsibility. Now, there are lots of different programs that you can do that with. One of the, probably the most obvious uh, parts of the Cherokee Nation that we compacted and took back and sort of exercised our sovereignty on was Sequoia High School. School's been there since 1871, just after the Civil War ended, and was run by the BIA up until the 90s. And Chief Chad Smith, former Chief Smith, uh, decided to compact all of the educational responsibilities of that school. And so what had been basically a residential school of assimilation, a government-funded school to take an Indian and turn him into a good tax-paying American and assimilate them. People don't understand that, that these concepts of assimilation were still occurring up into the 90s and even beyond and, until the current day, right? I mean, we're in some still, ways. We're still uh, trying to uh, mitigate the damage by some of the schools. We've got some residential schools that they're a lot better now, a lot better, you know. The uh, but the the policy was to bring the Indian in as a youngster for twelve years, put him in a uniform, uh, teach him to speak English, and uh, and not speak his own language. So when that child was digested through that assimilation school compulsory education system when he would be put back out into his tribal reservation he's going to break the next three or four generations of people for you he's not going to be a, a native american anymore he's legally in England because of his bloodline but culturally the indian is gone so we went through all of this, and when we compacted Sequoia High School, that went from uh, a school of last resort for troubled kids from all over. Our own parents went there. You know, that went from a school of last resort to a school of excellence. And when my daughter Tara graduated, all my kids graduated there, but when my daughter Tara graduated, there was a senior class of about 80 kids. 
almost half of them, half of those Indian children were Gates scholars. I believe it. And, and I've seen the numbers that uh, some of the highest population density of Millennium Gate scholars in the U.S. is, is there, right, right here in the Cherokee Nation. Once we took our school over, we still got that BIA funding, you know, like you talked about. Sure. We still got that baseline funding. And that's what it is. It's a minimum. It, like, that's the floor, right? It's the floor. It's the minimum baseline funding. We could add to that whatever we wanted. And we could set the curriculum a little bit more to what we needed for our people. And we went from a school of last resort to a school with a waiting list a mile long of kids trying to get in that school. And so that's a shining example of what can happen when a tribe really takes on the, the compact responsibilities of whatever they decided to uh, take back from, from the federal government. And a lot of the tribes, they're not there yet. It's okay. It's fine. So they're, they're fully funded by BIA. Um, a whole bunch of them still are. Some of them have nothing to do with the federal government. They don't even take federal funds in. Yeah. But the Cherokee Nation still is 75% funded by the federal government in its annual operating fund. So sovereignty is partial still. But bit by bit, we're taking pieces. Right. The Indian Health Service, the education system, the, the natural resources, we're taking some of these back. Food distribution, uh, social service programs, we're, we're compacting those and taking them on ourselves. This has been a long time ago, but, you know, we we're doing pretty good for a couple old fire guys. But when uh, Dave and I used to fight, be wild and firefighters together, we would joke, you know, we're, we're buying it back acre by acre and putting it back into trust one acre at a time. That's right. right. So, yeah. um, well, that, that's a really good segue into the next thing I wanted to talk about with you, which is something I know you're very passionate about, and it's not stickball. We'll get to that. But uh, language revitalization and, and you know, uh, when you were talking about the transformation that's occurred through the 638 pro compact process with our tribe, with Sequoia uh, School, it uh, made me think about the immersion school and the ability to set down curriculum. But, you know, as one of our, you know, treasured native language speakers, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the status of um, our tribe's language revitalization and also maybe what you know about it, uh, any other tribes that are trying to do something similar. The immersion program, I have to go back to former Chief Smith again. Yep. The, the guy really did some amazing things yep. uh, for, you know, planting seeds. That are still with us, still right? Still with us. Uh, and one of the things he did uh, was to build an immersion school. And the reason he did that was I know an elder gentleman he spoke to in Tahlequah one day, and he said, Sir, what is your opinion? What do I need to do as the chief in order to get our language, you know, a rejuvenation of our language to occur? And the elder man said, You need to talk to the Hawaiians. The Hawaiians. You need to talk to the Hawaiians. So a group of elder speakers was formed. I knew all of them. They're not all with us now. But they went to Hawaii. Wow. And they visited with the Hawaiian language immersion 
founders because the Hawaiian language was almost gone. They just had bits and pieces, words, a few isolated uh, speakers left. But what they have done over there is taken and immersed their children back in the language. And now they have hundreds and hundreds of speakers. And so that's where it started. Do you know about when that was? That would have been... Late 90s again? Late 90s, 97, 98-ish, somewhere in there. Okay. Um, actually, probably about 98 or 99. That's, I think that's when, that, when, when Chief Smith came in. Right around, right around that, 99 maybe. And um, so been quite a few years ago now, but the the immersion program, it like anything like that, you're doing a reverse assimilation. It is extremely difficult because to reverse what has been done for generations for now, a hundred years, a hundred years, no Cherokee, a hundred years, compulsory education system, a hundred years, arithmetic, English, social studies, civics, no culture of your own is going to be discussed here. No language that you speak at home is going to be spoken here. A hundred years of this. You have to reverse that. It is, it is very, very challenging. It is very challenging. So most parents today are what we would call assimilated Indian people. I'm not speaking for all tribes. I'm speaking for my tribe. Mm-hmm. To remove those children from their home, their assimilated eastern Oklahoma Cherokee home, and put them in an environment to restore their cultural identity and their language is not something that most parents are willing to. You're reversing the assimilation. So it's just as cruel yeah. in a way. So we have to tread very lightly when moving into revitalizing a, a language. Um, and that's been primarily the challenge. Well, are the kids learning enough that they can compete in college? Or they learn, you know, is is learning math in Turkey relevant to going on into, go to OU and become an attorney? I can't answer that question. I don't know. Well, I, did, I saw some data once on the reading comprehension because that was the first thought I had when the immersion school first, you know, was getting its feet under it some years back was, um, it's great, right, that we're doing this, but are we putting those kids at a future disadvantage uh, by uh, not having English as their primary language in their educational studies? And one study I saw um, a few years ago showed that the, I believe it was based on reading comprehension scores of ACT, so the reading comprehension part of the ACT and the scores for some of the immersion, not some, the scores for the students who had been through the immersion program, I think it was third through eighth grade at that time, were actually scored higher on English reading composition on their ACT significantly than the Oklahoma average um, or something to that effect. I wish I would have hung on to that. but So that shocked me to see that you know we're taking – children and we can put them through this system where they're speaking very little if any English in their educational studies and, and 
spit them out the other end and have them not only still be competitive but excel and and score well in their ACT. Like you said, go go get those advanced degrees in medicine or law. Go be a Gates Millennium Scholar and have that Fulbright scholarship. So um, that's really really cool to see that that like it's there's no disadvantage to doing that in terms like as in comparison to the public like public schools and actually can be can be an advantage right like the the success kind of speaks for itself i think exercising the brain is just the same as exercising the muscle uh when you teach a child to be bilingual or trilingual their brain strengthens and they become stronger mentally so there is no mystery that, that there are advantages to being multilingual. I mean, we have kids from Asia that speak uh, Cantonese and Vietnamese and different languages. There's, kids are geniuses, you know, because their brain is exercised so much. And so to teach our children uh, a, a, a second language, which is actually their native language now, mm-hmm. it does make their mind stronger. Um, I think the challenge with it is the parents, there's such a small number of kids in the immersion program that I think the parents feel a little weird about it. Their kids aren't running around with the other kids and down the road and playing on the same ball teams. It's it's a real sacrifice. You've really got to encourage those parents to stick with it. A lot of them pull their kids out after a couple of years because the kids, all their friends are going to school down the road playing regular games, and here these immersion kids are out here playing stickball and sort of an isolate within their own community. Wow. And it's kind of like, oh, look at those weird kids over there. All they talk is turkey. Wow. So it, it, it's got it, – there's a lot of challenges stigma. even within our own ranks. Sure, big-time stigma. Big time. I, it still goes all back to reversing, you know, those – hundred years of assimilation. You that's, know, that's right. And they didn't assimilate Indians a hundred years ago so they could put them out to be good Indians again. So to take, the process. take an assimilated Indian child from an assimilated family, bring them back into the culture, a de-assimilation process, well, what do you put them back out to be? To be an, an assimilated Indian or a non-assimilated Indian? I mean, where are we going with it? So I think relevance is where it's going to play in, in my opinion. And I think to expand the language, instead of removing children from the normal school setting, I think it might be a, a much greater advantage to put teachers out where our schools are already 98% native mm-hmm. in where I live. Still our school, well, Yeah, all yeah. of our schools are primarily Indian. Over 90%, some of them 98, 99% Indian. Well, let's put teachers in there and give an hour of Cherokee a day for eight years or nine years, K, pre K through eighth grade. That's nine years. By the time those kids leave eighth grade, they could teach Cherokee. <laughs> you probably Because they've had an hour of Cherokee a day, the same as they've had an hour of math. Yep. They've had an hour of English. I mean, by eighth grade, we're pretty smart academically. We, we So if we could include Cherokee in that and work with the state of Oklahoma to allow us to fit that into the curriculum, 
we're going to create a whole bunch of jobs yeah. for people to teach in those schools. It may not be a certified teacher, but a teacher's aide who specializes in the Cherokee language mm -hmm. and give each one of those kids an hour of Cherokee every day for K, pre-K through eighth grade. If you want to go on into high school with it, fine. But uh, heck, by eighth grade, they're going to be pretty good. You're going to just Ader County alone. If you did that, you're going to be making, uh, you know, there's 4,000 students in the county. So every eighth grade graduation, you got 4,000 new Cherokee speakers. Wow. The immersion program right now and the adult immersion program they have, we're creating six to 12 speakers a year. Wow. Heck, we're losing more than that every month. Really? Mortality. Yeah, it makes sense. I wonder, do you have a firm grasp? I have no idea on what the numbers are and what the trend is. I know it's not the trend's not good, right? We're through mortality. We're losing native language speakers and, and COVID, like a lot of tribes, you know, hit hit our tribal people really hard and even our elders are native language speakers. You know, our our speakers are dying at a rate way faster than we're producing new second language speakers. Um it, it's enough. We're swimming upstream. To yeah. Be honest with you, Mark. It, it, we're. But the strength of the people is there. We just need to encourage, and continue to encourage. And if we can get some resources out into the schools, uh, in the next decade, uh, before it's all over, we, 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 possibly at the rate we're losing our first language speakers right now, the eighteen hundred speakers we have, or whatever it is in in Oklahoma. Uh, we've got about 10 or 12 years. Wow. How many of those, so basically if, obviously we need to put more into the system, right, then we're losing through mortality. But basically if we didn't do that, in, in 10 to 12 years we may not have any native language speakers left that learned it in the home and, and were true first language speakers. Is Correct. That, wow. We've got wow. about a decade, Mark. Wow. Yeah. We're, we're there. Yeah, Final knocking on the door. Yeah, knocking on the door. You and I will be about 60 when, the, when that time comes. Hmm. Well, that's a good probably ending for the language um, stuff. Um, but let me ask you this, man. I kind of saved this to last. For some of our viewers um, that don't know anything about Cherokee culture or maybe not even anything about Native American culture. Um, tell us tell us about stickball. I know it's become a huge part of your life in the last couple of years, and um, you've taken a, a renewed focus in ensuring that, much like our language, that that piece of culture lives on far beyond you. The stick game is our most ancient sport. Uh, not just the Cherokee Indian, but the Muscogalgi the creek people all the creek tribal towns the choctaw chickasaw <clears throat> uchi uh, all these tribes that we we come from the southeast originally here in oklahoma we brought with us our traditions our our uh, ceremonial grounds our ceremonial fires were brought here with us and were reestablished here in oklahoma along with that came the ball game the stick stick game and I've played just about every stick game there is with the different tribes and whatnot but I'm a stick maker and I've been making ball sticks for 30 years and 
it what was a seasonal hobby in the spring, I would make 10, 15, 20 pairs of sticks a year. Now I'm making, uh, you know, two or 300 pair a month. Wow. And, you know, since I'm retired from the Federal Fire Service and I can work at home and there's a need for the uh, native sports equipment that I create there in my shop, I stay busy every day. Even this morning, I had to work from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. in the shop and then hightail it to Shalada to get here in time to, to visit with you. Um, and, and tomorrow, I'll be doing the same thing. And, and then Monday, I'll be working again in the shop. So the stick game is the grandfather of field sport here in America, which now we've got worldwide sports that have been inspired from the Southeastern Indian stick game. Any sport that you can think of with two goals and a center line and two equal teams on the field all comes from us. Makes sense. Soccer, basketball, football. I mean, rugby. Rugby. Hockey. hockey. All those sports are. Lacrosse, obviously. Lacrosse, of course, is the, uh, the Mohawk Six Closest, Nations. Yeah. These, this field sport concept, when the Europeans came here and they witnessed the the mighty southeastern tribes with thousands of ball players on the field they were uh, intrigued they were entertained they were amazed they'd never seen anything at this magnitude mm-hmm. so all these sports were inspired from it but that's our contribution mark that that is our contribution to the world is this field competition the field sport it's not that we invented football. We invented the concept of the of the way it's the structure sure. of it. The two the two goalposts, the t- the field equally divided in half, the equal teams, and the head to head to try and get to the other person's Full goal. Contact. Whether it's a basketball, football, That's whatever right. it is. They're all very closely. They're all first cousins of each other. Sure, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, when you think about how stickball is played, right? And their grandfather is our game, the creator's game. Stickball. Now, 1491 and back, very highly organized people occupied this continent. Uh, We had no disease. Our numbers were strong. Our trade was further than you can even imagine. Our trade routes went all the way across this continent. The ball game passed down by our forefathers, was originally used to establish dominance. It was a style of war. It was a style of uh, tribal town versus tribal town, tribe versus tribe, to establish real estate transactions. Large pieces of land used for hunting or tribal town uh, rivers and stuff where people lived. You could you could uh, set terms for a ball game. A Cherokee could challenge a Creek, or a Creek could challenge a Choctaw tribal town village. A village I'm talking about. And if that tribal town had claim of a certain geographic area, say a river valley, or from the river to the coast, or something sure. like that, well, they could be challenged for that wow. for say four years or ten years, uh, a certain amount of time. Terms were set, and so. Uh, uh, if the challenge was met and accepted, 
They said, yes, we'll let you play us for this river valley. We'll let your warriors compete with our warriors for this river valley for four years. So they come together at a designated site, and they play the game. And whatever the score of that game is, it was honored. There was no question. And so now the victor got to keep that, either keep or occupy for hunting or whatever resource needs, that river valley for whatever years they set, four years or ten years or whatever. And is it true sometimes the games will go on for days, day and night? Like, Yes, and it could be up to five miles long, the field. What? You're talking about a battle. I mean, they call it the little brother of war, right? Yes. It was war. But the Indian didn't have to kill Indian to establish dominance is what I'm getting at. We learned later how to engage in full, what they call total war. You know, murdering thousands of people to get... <laughs> the Indian didn't do that. Not our people. We didn't have to do that. I mean, I'm sure there were uh, violent battles and whatnot. Sure. But it wasn't widespread violence among our people. We were related to everybody. So even though you had to establish dominance, had to establish uh, land dominance or whatever, there were related people. There were kinships between the tribal towns. Even one might be a Creek, one might be a Cherokee, but they were, they were kin. They had relation. I'm just trying to blood, picture blood kinfolk. A, ba- a ball field miles long. Well, you would have... You would have people camping along the edge of it, you know, set up camp for several days, cooking. It was a very festive thing. And if the field was set for a mile or, or I've heard rumors up to five miles, well, you had a lot of men out there. And so yeah. each man didn't run the whole field. The ball would be moved and advanced that five mile. I see. And people along the way could watch. I see. And, you know, this, some of it was in the woods. Some of it was in open ground. It was a battle Jeez. to advance the ball. One ball <laughs> to advance that ball, east or west, up that field. Um, there was one ball competition that occurred, I think, if I remember right, it was between the creek, a creek tribal town and a Choctaw tribal town over some land, probably in the Alabama-Georgia line, somewhere in there. Well, that was in the colonial days, British colonies. And the game went on for this piece of property. And in the end, it was a tie or something. I, I don't know. It got tied up. and, and the, the, But the game ended, and there was some irregularities in it. It was either a tie or a draw or something. And so the men had played for a couple of days and were just beat up and wore out. And so they said, well, what are we going to do? So the captains came together and said, let's allow our women to break the tie. So the Choctaw women and the Creek women brought in ball sticks, and they played the game, and the Choctaws won. Hmm. So the Creeks got moved off of that land, and, but it was honored. They honored this. Okay, well, they won, and it's a tiebreaker. A short while later, there was some surveyors. Some of the king's surveyors were surveying what we would call the Georgia line. 
and those Creeks who had lost that land actually went and helped the king's surveyors because they knew the lay of the land better than the Choctaws who had just won it. And so not only did they honor, but they actually assisted the king's surveyors to make sure that Georgia and the Choctaw line was was accurate because they knew the lay of the land and they knew the boundaries. Yeah. So it was very interesting history. Wow. Right, let me ask you this. And I know you said recently you've started doing larger orders for schools, which is really cool. But are you surprised in the renewed interest in stickball by our youth in the last few years with everything you've been doing? 20 years ago, you wouldn't have found a stickball game going on outside of a ceremonial ground within the Cherokee people. Three grounds. That's all we got left. Sunday afternoons, warm summer days, there are going to be stickball games going on at them grounds. So you had 80 to 100 people total that were carrying on stickball. Now we got thousands of them. Now they've moved outside the ground in order to play. They're playing at schools. They're playing in these tournaments. It's become a sport outside of the traditional uh, ball grounds, traditional ceremonial grounds, tribal town grounds. It's amazing how that has happened. And I'm proud of the influence that I have had in this resurgence among the young people. And so my job now is to make sticks and teach others to make sticks uh, before I walk on. How many st- how many sets of all sticks do you think you've made, if you had to guess? A thousand? Five thousand? Oh, Fifteen thousand. Wow. Sixteen thousand pairs of sticks yeah, in, my, in my life. With maybe 90% of those just being in the last couple of years here, is the production's really ramped up because the demand's ramped up? No, that... There, definitely, there's been an increase in my in what I do over the last uh, five years, six years. But uh, all still by hand. All still by hand. The traditional way. The only way I know how. Yep. I cut my logs. I split them with wedges and a hammer, in staves, and then with my draw knife, I carve them into the shape of the stick. And each tribe has its own different style of sticks. Which I didn't know until a few positions. months ago until you showed yeah. me that. So there's all kind of different nuances between all these different tribes of their yes. different styles of sticks. You know, and you've got different positions that require different sticks even within tri- even within a tribe. So I can make any of them. And, boy, the people have really pushed me to, to advance myself even more and so I try to teach the young men that I can in my community uh, one of my sons is a good stick maker I mean he's he's actually it's hard to tell his sticks from mine <laughs> and uh, I thought man where did this come from you know he just helped me all of his life and then we didn't want to make him because that was his daddy's thing he wanted to do his own thing yeah and but recently he came in the shop and he really surprised me he knew what he was doing and was very good at it. And I've got some other young men in, in my community who are, uh, you know, college-age kids that are uh, becoming pretty good stick makers. And I've, I've never tried to demonstrate any impatience with them. 
um, I'm always there for these guys, and they, they love coming to the shop and, and learning more. So we're doing good. We're doing real good. We're making a big difference. And not only making sticks, but, you know, even this coming Tuesday, I've got to go to a, a school full of turkeys over in Mays County. And those kids are learning about stickball, these turkey kids. And I, I get to go talk to them and, and explain the game to them. And they're going to have some sticks. And I'm going to show them how I make sticks. And it's just a good field lesson for these kids. And so I do that all the time. It's a lot of fun to work with the young people. And uh, now some of those young people are in their 30s. Wow. You know, I, I run into them, and they're, they're 30 years old. They have kids of their own. They're calling me, kid, you made my sticks when I was a kid. Can you make some for my son? Wow. I've got some families. I've made three generations of sticks for a family. That's really yeah, cool. They're very proud of that. That's super cool, yeah. man. Well, what else do you want to talk about, man? It's rare we have the opportunity to sit down and visit. Yeah, we're both busy men, and we live three or four hours apart. But uh, I've got nine grandchildren now. Congratulations. And I've got a great-granddaughter. Yep, you told me that. Old. That's crazy. We're doing good. Uh, family's strong. Our ceremonial ground is strong. We're, um, In fact, we're at uh, today's Friday, tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock. I report down at the each shoulder ceremonial ground. Mm-hmm. I'm the chief at that ground. I have been for 21 years, and I hold, I'll hold that chief uh, position until I pass. Mm-hmm. And it goes to, I've got a seven-year-old grandson. It goes to him, my daughter's son. Uh, so we're training him to come up to take my place. But tomorrow, we start on our townhouse, and it's a, a, a an enclosed structure that we're building that uh, we've been saving up money because we're unsubsidized by the tribe. We raise all of our own funds, and we start on that tomorrow. <laughs> and it's it's actually a – it's not going to be built fully traditional because of the maintenance that would come with that. You know, an earthen – I mean, I'm not, I'm not getting into that. We're, yeah. We'll use some modern materials to – encapsulate the building you know like modern roofing and stuff like that but the the main structure will be traditionally built wow. the wood beams and whatnot so it'll be a big open building uh with one doorway where we'll have seating in there and that's where we're going to revitalize right so we're going to continue to revitalize our language in the winter because right now we don't have an indoor place to be at at the ceremony ground it's more of a summertime yep. place you've been around the stomp grounds you know what i'm talking about so this would be sort of a, a nice addition to our ground. Um, and as far as I know, it may be the first traditional style townhouse built in alignment with the ceremonial ground post removal. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. We're very proud of that. What are the other two ceremonial grounds? Uh, or where are they at? They're in Sequoia County. All, all three? No, we're in Cherokee County. Oh, that's right. And then the other two are in Sequoia County. Gotcha. That's really cool. And we're good friends with, we're all good friends with each other. We support each other, so. Cool. Just not a whole lot of us left. No. So, 
you know, we talk about language and 2,000 speakers or 1,800 speakers or 1,200. They always come up with these different numbers. I don't know mm-hmm. where they're getting them. Um, the ceremonial people, the ceremonial practitioners of our tribe. Way smaller than that. Man, we're huh? down to like 150 people that are carrying the weight of the of the actual foundational structure of our people. You know, this modern government we have, the foundation of that is the tribal towns. The confederation right. of tribal towns is what made Cherokee Nation. In the ceremony. Well, not just the ceremony, but the whole framework of how our original uh, style of society, government. Yeah, yeah, style of government. It came from the, from the tribal towns. And so the fact that we've gone from 55 tribal towns to three, and yet, uh, you know, we talk about language revitalization. Well, it's nowhere more relevant than it is within our ceremonial ground. Right. Well, it's kind of like, what's the point of revitalizing the language if the rest of the culture falls by the wayside? There right? you go. And and this is the most important part, which I tell my guys all the time, and my family, my kids, I say, you know, political sovereignty, which we all hear about, sovereignness, sovereignty, sovereignty, politics, money, revenue, none of that can exist without a cultural foundation, not only to become federal recognized, but to remain federal recognized tribe. That's funny because I was just talking to a friend about this yesterday, but you're exactly right. Like, there's a disconnect there sometimes, right? There have been 141 tribes in the United States of America who have been disenrolled already and can never get it back. The bloodline's still there. The history's still there. But what did they lose? They lost their culture and they lost their language. So to perpetuate our culture, to perpetuate our language is very important. It's very important. These to enjoy political sovereignty, you must have a cultural sovereignty. There has to be an unbroken line of culture, an unbroken line of culture to hold up those politics. Now, the politics ain't going to all go away. Sure. Our culture, we still stay federally recognized Indians. We can go right under back under BIA management. We're still a tribe because we have our language, we have our culture. Sure. The unique, the sovereignty is the culture. It's completely based on the completely culture. Based on that. It's very interesting. Hmm. I never thought about it like We've that. We've got 150 people left, Mark. That's, that's even more scary than the... It's like one three thousandths of one percent or something. I can't even do the math on this. Yeah. And all these people want to be citizens of our tribe. Well, Jump in and help us survive. My goodness. All assimilated. But if everyone becomes assimilated, we can be... Wilma Mankiller said it every time she gave a speech. The last Cherokee ceremonial fire goes out, the world of the Cherokee ends. She was talking about our federal recognition. Mm. Muskogee Creek, same way. Well, we got our marching orders. I remember you told me one time, you know, I, I, I had grown up in the culture, right? Being from Jay, moved out, lived in Oregon, Idaho, Montana, away from the culture, working for the federal government, and then 
came back home to work for the BIA. And, and I remember one day I was in your office in Tahlequah and started asking me questions about who my family was. And, um, and it was Fields. My great-grandpa is allotment land that was, you know, five miles northeast of Jay on um, Whitewater. Uh, was, his name was Claude Fields and was a direct descendant of Richard Fields, the chief, the old man. And I, I didn't know any of that. Um, I mean, I, I, I kind of knew of it, I guess, from my grandma, but never really like took it seriously, never dug into it. But I just remember being in your office and you telling me, you know, you say it, it doesn't matter if you're full blood. It doesn't matter if you're 1%, you're Cherokee. And, and if you don't take uh, an interest in learning your history and learning your culture and learning your language, then when you die, eventually there is no more Cherokee Nation. If everyone had that poor of an attitude about it, then in a generation or two, we're gone. There is no Cherokee Nation. Our culture does not pass down through the bloodstream. That's right. We have to fight for it. We have to encourage. We have to perpetuate. Preserving it, that's like a pickle in a jar. That's preserving. Well, what, what good is that? Preserve. No. Perpetuate. Cultivate. Push. That's what we need. That's what makes the tribe survive. And those 141 that have been disenrolled, they didn't push. They didn't cultivate. They didn't perpetuate. We're not there yet. We're not done yet. We still have a chance, and we're going we're gonna to keep the fight going from my family and other families like mine. We're going to keep pushing. We're going to keep cultivating, keep perpetuating. Look what we've done with stickball in the last two decades. My goodness. There are schools climbing over each other to get orders from me for sticks. I mean, they're one a bunch of them. So it's, what, it, what is it helping me do? It helped me put other boys to work. Other boys that can help finish the ball sticks, tie the, the webbing in them. And they're learning. They're actually learning more about who they are as a human being. And it's bringing some money and changing the financial dynamic of their home and putting those sticks in the hands of those babies, those little kids, where they just, it just lifts them back up and they, they realize they're really important people. And that's the main thing about the culture is that if we don't keep the importance of our identity, then those kids will grow, and they will. They we always want to be a part of something. Well, what are they going to be a part of? They're going to be part of a gang. They're going to be part of a a, a drug community. Drugs, yeah. They're going to disrespect themselves and uh, shoot chemicals in their body. To what? That our culture doesn't have time for that. So if we, if we establish a strong cultural foundation in our children and empower them and educate them, that's what I said, education is the closest thing to magic you can give a kid. That includes cultural education. Cultural education. I mean, I don't want to take away the education they're getting, but I want to add to it. I don't want to take away the arithmetic or the civics, or the social studies. we got to have that. We're in America. We're Americans. Right. But we're also Indians. That's it's hard for some people to understand, too. Yes. 
So we have double duty, Mark. We have double duty to straddle being a Native American and being an American, with dual citizenship. Very unique situation. And Oklahoma is extra special because we have more Indians in Oklahoma than any other state in the Union. 39 independent, sovereign Indian nations. Level to level with the U.S. federal government. Yeah. Government to government. Government to government relations. And uh, so we, we, to understand that and be able to move forward as individual churches to each do our best. You called me here. We're having this conversation. This is going to help somebody understand a little bit more about us. That's good. That's what we need to do. This is We're perpetuating our own tribe today. We're cultivating in somebody. It's going to help somebody. It might help our friends in the room. Yep. They might be hearing stuff for the first time. They're going to want to know more. They're going to have their children one day. They're going to want to teach their children. It's cultivation. It's growth. So these conversations are very important. And I'm very grateful that I got to come yep. talk with you. Thanks, man. I appreciate yeah. it. That's a good note, I think, to end it on. So, Unless you have anything else you want to. Yeah. I think it's perfect. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, that'll wrap us up here with my good friend David Cumming Deer and the Work That Matters podcast. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Work That Matters, the official Shalada podcast. Learn more about us at shalada.com. C-H-L-O-E-T-A dot com.